Project Lawful aka Plane Crash by Yarwain, aka Eliezer Yudkowski and Lintamande. Thread 1, Mad Investor Chaos and the Woman of Asmodeus. Episode 15. Carissa has a plan for the afternoon, which is to pay attention to the actual lesson. She recalls from her days in school that this was usually a good idea, and she's pretty sure she should wait before she tries to completely reform the teachings of Asmodeanism on the material plane. To make sure everybody starts out on the same page, Keltham will quickly summarize earlier conversations for the benefit of any harem members who might not have been in hearing range for it. He still isn't distinguishing them all that well, and didn't actually count them, if somebody was in the washroom or something. He definitely knows Carissa was absent for some of it. Things Keltham summarizes. Keltham is not sure how important it actually is to understand where everything you know is situated within the order of larger reality, but Dathelan sure does situate all of it, and maybe that's important. He doesn't know. Hopefully he doesn't have to burn more than a couple of hours here and there on situating things. Most adult Dathilani are running around thinking that they know the universe's age to within 0.1%, and all the names and qualities of its tiny parts that haven't been reduced to even tinier parts. The very smart people of Dathilan, actually the prediction markets, but he'll explain that in more detail later, have predicted how this could otherwise make people weak and unable to handle mental adversity, which is why the adults play a lot of confusing pranks on children in case they someday end up in Galarian or something. Like, they weren't literally anticipating this exact event, or they'd have gone a lot harder on his pranks. But it sure is why Keltham is hitting the ground running instead of curling up in a ball, whining about structural uncertainty. And similarly, even ordinary life means sometimes facing questions you don't know how to answer. Doing basic research means facing questions whose answers are very unlike all the questions and answers you've studied before. Keltham regrets to inform Cheliax that only asking kids questions they already know how to answer seems like it would obviously leave them weak and unprepared for real intellectual challenges. He's pretty sure this is true of people at their own intelligence level, less sure about people with average or below-average intelligence for Galarian. Keltham does apologize for presenting his students with confusing questions, when they weren't used to that, had no idea why he was doing that, and also didn't have any meta-idea of why he'd be doing stuff they didn't understand. Keltham will try to remember to check in verbally about how people are doing, since Chelish Pride permits verbal answers about that, but seems to prohibit overt visual displays of confusion. If Keltham seems to be forgetting to do this, he hopes somebody will remind him in words, even if Cheliax considers that slightly undignified. As an older kid teaching younger kids, he expected the younger kids to give much more overt signals of how well he was doing as a teacher. Dothilan doesn't have magical healing, and they sure don't have resurrections. Hence, despite all their intellectual toughening procedures, they don't have any equivalent of like teaching kids how to walk on broken legs so that they can mentally divorce physical pain from long-term damage. If Cheliax trains its kids to be strong in that particular way, Keltham has not gone through this training yet, and this is probably not the right time either. 
Correspondingly, if inflicting physical pain is considered an important element in Chelyak's of training subconscious intuitions, Keltham has no idea how to do that professionally, and hopes they'll excuse him from it. Keltham separately may end up making a case that rewards often work better than punishments, because you can scale rewards directly to performance, instead of a problematic notion of are people doing their best, plus the brain learns from foregone rewards similarly in many ways to punishment but he'd have to understand this entire system better before he started feeling confident about critiquing that element specifically. It does seem specifically worrisome to Keltham that in a punishment-based system, you'd have to worry about people taking safer, less challenging lessons, and trying not to give outward signs that their potential was high enough to do better if their subconscious was learning to avoid pain inflicted for doing less than their best. Maybe he's totally off-base in worrying about that, and Cheliax has already solved it somehow. But the reason Keltham is bringing that up immediately is to emphasize that he is going to continue throwing confusing questions at them, and this is not meant to be a threatening, overly difficult problem whose painful failures they need to avoid. It's meant to be an overly difficult problem. They can safely hang out around and safely fail on, without that hurting. It'd be particularly dumb if Keltham started throwing more difficult problems at them. They got hurt more for failing or just got scared of failing, and some deep part of their brain learned the lesson that facing actual confusing cognitive problems is scarier and more painful than facing easy fake cognitive problems. That is why Keltham now emphasizes the point that whatever problems they were trying to solve in their education before this, object-level failure will be punished less, because this is new to them and their best is worse than it was on easier problems. Also, because Keltham doesn't know how to teach that way at all. And, above all, success on these new, harder problems is more valuable, and during equity negotiations, he will ensure that it is accordingly better paid. That all seems... reasonable. They think that probably Keltham's teaching style will be fine for them. It would also be silly if learning how to focus with broken legs meant you couldn't focus without broken legs. If there's a mistake, it has to be less obvious than punishment not working as well as rewards for humans. No, she's going to not think about this and focus on the lesson. Also, she's never skipping lunch again. This afternoon, Keltham is going to try conveying some of the absolute basics about population heredity dynamics, which was on his mind during lunch today, for reasons which need not be explained. Keltham actually says this part out loud. These basics are not all of the knowledge Keltham has out of Dathilon about heredity. There are advanced tricks he's deliberately not going to cover until they're bought from him, but he's wondering if even the basics will be self-evidently useful enough that it gets him enough credit with the Chelish government to cover things like detect magic goggles. Also, after his experience with how Chelish education is configured and having been told where the average intelligence on this planet has ended up he feels some degree of concern and a need to check that current heritage optimization programs are not being run, like, backwards. Keltham says this out loud, too. Before he launches into his own lecture, what are Cheliax's current knowledge or hypotheses about heredity, and how have they set up whatever current heritage optimization programs they're running for crops, domesticated animals, and people? Cheliax knows that children inherit traits from their parents. The dominant theory is that girls mostly inherit psychological traits from their mothers and boys from their fathers, based on how it works in the species of marsh birds where a famous wizard did a bunch of seminal breeding experiments. But some people think humans are more like dogs in inheriting from both parents. 
Certainly, in skin and hair, humans can take after either parent. Humans hybridize with elves, drow, orcs, sylphs, and hybridize inconsistently, offspring rare, often sterile. With angels, devils, and elementals polymorphed humanoid, and don't hybridize with halflings or gnomes or catfolk or gnolls or giants or goblins or merfolk. Human hybrids with elves are half-elves and with orcs are half-orcs, but human hybrids by dwarves, if they live at all, will fully resemble dwarves and be sterile. Cheliax is divided on whether to try to reduce the percentage of children who die of disease, for reasons related to heredity. Toughness is heritable. And if you start saving the half of kids that currently die, possibly you'll be raising a generation of adults with fundamental weaknesses in their blood, which they'll pass along such that future generations get weaker and weaker. That seems like one way you could run a heritage optimization program backwards, and they're not doing that. Cheliax pays students who graduated with good grades from wizard school to have children. Though talented wizards usually have lots of ways to make money, and it's more about communicating that they're doing a thing valuable to Cheliax than about shifting their financial incentives much. Wizards actually have fewer children than other people because they can choose whether they become pregnant and other people can't, but Keltham's reportedly going to introduce technology to let everyone do that, which should help on that front. Okay, yes, yes. If smart people have fewer children because they have better access to contraception and nobody is, like, doing anything about that, that could be a problem, yes. This is frankly something Keltham has never even imagined as a catastrophic failure mode of a civilization, but that could have been, over past generations, a very large, cumulative problem, yes. How good that anyone on Galarian has finally potentially noticed this is an issue. The good contraceptive technology that Dath Elan uses is unfortunately not trivial on the tech ladder, but Keltham can explain how to research things ever, and they can hopefully find some better makeshifts than whatever people are doing now. Cheap makeshifts, which a sensible government will subsidize. That interbreeding stuff is fascinating, from a seeking hidden order perspective, but Keltham will explain why in more length later. Does Cheliax have any kind of thinking that's about, like, why are there equal numbers of men and women, at least among humans? Assuming there are. If there aren't, Keltham is going to have to check a few things and then potentially back out a number of his assumptions. There are equal numbers of men and women except in countries that kill baby girls, which is definitely some of them, but not Cheliax, because Cheliax doesn't suck. They are not aware of thinking that's about that specifically. It's also true of most animals, it's not just a human thing. Why would it be true of humans and most animals? There's a reason for it, a hidden order behind it. Guess wrongly. This is the Dath Ilani way of education, and you are not always expected to know when the teacher asks a question, because you will not always know the answer when real life asks you a question. And in both cases, you must gather your scattered and inadequate thoughts and manage to say out loud your first guess, so you at least know what you don't know and where your current thoughts point. If all your thoughts are wrong and you know it, say both your best-seeming current thought and the reason it must be wrong. Much discovery of hidden order begins like this. Do not refuse to venture forth. There are some nervous giggles at this. Then they start speculating. There might be some agreement of the gods about it, though that'd be less likely to cover animals. Children are made from a boy and a girl, 
so maybe their making involves getting boy and girl inputs and then drawing at random which turns into a child which would get you half and half. Maybe souls come out half and half and then bodies that don't get a soul die, so you see half and half among live births. Suppose you were designing humans from scratch. Would you make them to have equal numbers of men and women? Don't consider as constraints things like the balance of male and female desire for sex or mates. You could, if you like, say that there would be twice as many men as women, and women who on average desired twice as much sex as men, if you were designing the human species from scratch. What would be the consequences if you were designing the species from scratch, and you said there should be twice as many men as women, or twice as many women as men? Well, a lot of people would have a hard time getting laid is the main thing. But you wouldn't actually go for equal numbers if you were optimizing for that, because men generally want sex more than women. You'd go for maybe two to one or three to one. Actually, observes Meritzel, mostly women seems better. You can increase your population faster because more people can bear children, and the men can get around and it's easier to attract foreign men than foreign women anyway. And she thinks women are better citizens, on average, lawfuler. Less likely to be adventurers, and a country without adventurers is dead by a thousand cuts no matter how many babies they're having. Ah, well, those are interesting puzzles in their own right, aren't they? Why are women lawfuler? Why are men more likely than women to become adventurers? Keltham knows the answers already, even though he's a stranger to the planet, because it was the same way in Dath Ilan. He's not going to tell them the answer just yet. They're welcome to try to see it on their own, if they can. And maybe they even will, before he gets around to giving away the answers. If so, he will be duly impressed. But return back to the original question. Suppose, again, you are designing humans from scratch. Why not twice as many women as men? and also have the women be as likely as current men to become adventurers. Wouldn't a group like that be able to increase faster, because more people could bear children? Possibly you need some scarcity of women to motivate the men to be adventurers, and if they had girls either way, then they'd all just lounge around doing nothing? No offense to present company who is admittedly a counterexample. But the average person might be motivated by it being the case that they can have sex if they work hard and not otherwise best achieved by balance. It seems like you'd make people as lawful as you could if you were making them, and it's not clear why that'd be lawfuler for women than for men. And same with propensity to be an adventurer. No. Well, you don't want everyone being an adventurer. Some of them have to stay home making the institutions function. Maybe there's a trade-off in human psychology between lawfulness and adventurer tendency? In countries where people kill their daughters, they do it because men are more valuable, under the local cultural regime where women are hardly allowed to do anything. And presumably, if enough people did that, then eventually daughters would become valuable again, as the men wanted wives. So you'd end up with as many living women as made daughters as valuable as sons, or with across-the-board infanticide if no children were valuable to have. Keltham reminds himself again that the whole afterlife thing is obviously going to lead to different local mores about death, just as the existence of healing magic has led to different local mores about pain. Killing babies here does not mean the same thing that killing or cryosuspending babies would in Death Elon. It wouldn't be surprising if the whole pre-afterlife world operates as a tiny adjunct to a much larger afterlife. 
only of note to gods, and a higher economy, because it's the part of reality that provides the afterlife with its intake feed. Some of the attitudes ascribed to countries outside Cheliacs definitely give that impression. Keltham also notes that Carissa seems to be able to follow the thread of an argument better than others here. He's not used to thinking of that as an adult capability, per se, but maybe it takes a lot more life experience to follow threads of argument if you have, like, very little formal training in it. Ah, well, if you value having more of your own children, then if the human species had been designed to birth ten times as many female children as male, you might wish yourself to have more male children. It would not necessarily be any better in terms of producing a functioning species. The species could get along fine with each male having to do ten times as much work of fertilizing women. It doesn't take that long. Well, if you're doing it right, it takes longer, but not so long that a male couldn't fertilize another female the next day. Still, if the rest of your species gave birth to ten times as many women as men, and yet you could manage to birth only men yourself, you would have a lot more grandchildren than the average women. And yet what difference does any of that make? What difference does it make as to what some woman wants to herself when it comes to how the human species works as a whole? At least in Dathilan, women cannot choose the sex of their child by just an act of will. Then how can their wants control the balance of female and male births across the whole species? I'll tell you right now, the answer isn't that there is some mysterious channel by which the emotions of women collectively control the balance of births. You might have to look at things a little sideways to get it. But even if you can't get it, guess anyways. Oh, and don't forget, if you can guess why your guess might be wrong, say that part too. You're not trying to convince me of your guess. This isn't like wacky chelish books. You're not trying to tell me just one side of a story. Like you're selling me your guess as a product and trying to get a higher price on it by concealing information while hoping I don't realize you're concealing information. I mean, if you want to sell me anything in real life, sell me on how good you are at reasoning. That means when you tell me your best guess, you should try to figure out how your best guess might be wrong. If you can see why it's probably wrong, if you can already see something that doesn't fit with your guess, tell me that part too. Remember, when real life hands you a problem, it won't tell you when you guess wrong, the way a teacher in a classroom tells you when you're wrong. In actual real life, it's your job to figure out why your best guess might still be wrong. Dathalani teachers let kids stay wrong about some things for years, and older kids are forbidden to tell younger kids about them. Well, people can't decide what overall population ratio makes the most sense, but the gods probably can. The problem with that theory being that, as far as you know, Doth Elon doesn't have those. As Modia says, If you had a family that only threw daughters, and one that only threw sons, Tonya said, they'd do about as well for themselves, I'd think. It's not like throwing only sons is an advantage. Men don't have more children than women on average, since they're having them with women. The, uh, problem with my theory is, I don't know, maybe you could imagine it being two-thirds to one-third and still somehow working out so that no one had an advantage. I don't know how you would prove you wouldn't. Why does it matter whether some family has an advantage? What do the forces that created humans care about that? Tanya bites her lip. I feel like it should, but I don't have a good explanation. When someone's got an advantage, then the situation's not stable. And if no one has an advantage, then the situation's stable. And if it's not stable, then it moves until it arrives somewhere stable, only how is it moving here? With national politics, the way it moves is that other countries deliberately counterbalance ones that are growing. 
With wars, the way it moves is that the side that's more powerful wins. But with babies, it's not that some people throw all girls and some people throw all boys, where one would increase its numbers until it didn't have an advantage. Instead, everybody throws a mix. That's just a confusion without even a theory. How they manage to know one thing around here, but not another. Probably the concept of an equilibrium appeared in wizardry, even though, apparently, wizards don't already know calculus. At least at their level, right. Anytime you've got pressures on something, moving it, it'll keep moving for so long as the pressures aren't balanced. Half male and half female represents a balance of something, which is why it's like that. But what is it that's balancing? We have thoughts like, well, if it was ten times as many women as men, or ten times as many men as women, then a woman who had all male children or all female children would have more grandchildren. But that doesn't explain how it's a pressure, how it would be able to move the system's mix of men and women, if that mix wasn't already one-to-one. -one. How can we get from in a country with ten times as many women as men, one woman with all male children would have ten times as many grandchildren, Two, there is a pressure that will move the average ratio of men and women, if it isn't already one-to-one? -one? This takes them a while. They're more willing to show confusion on their faces, at least. Eventually. Well... Say you throw only daughters, and those daughters also throw only daughters, and some other people throw only sons who also throw only sons. No, that doesn't work, because they'd have to have children with each other. No, I think you're on to something, Meritzel says. I mean, not in the case where some people only throw sons and some only throw daughters, but in the case where some people mostly throw sons and some mostly throw daughters and pass that along, then if you start out with mostly women... The people who mostly throw sons will have more grandchildren until there's not more women anymore, and they haven't got an advantage. Uh, I'm confused about how you'd pass along a tendency to throw sons. I'm not sure you can do that. You're on the right track. Remember some things I told you earlier about tiny spirals inside people. Remember that those hidden orders are real and not just stories. Or at least they were definitely real in Doth Ilan and probably also here given that the food hasn't already killed me. Inside every human body, there are tiny spirals that code how a body works, themselves divided into twenty-three pairs of packages. One of those package pairs is the sex package pair, or chromosome pair in baseline. Keltham sketches out the sex chromosomes, XY for male, XX for female. A child gets one chromosome in each chromosome pair, from each parent allocated by the parent at random. But if you imagine a new genetic alternative mutation, which influenced the ratio of sperm containing Y chromosomes or X chromosomes, or a mutation in the mother, which influenced whether male or female pre-infants were kept and gestated, that mutation wouldn't have to be a mutation in the sex chromosomes in particular. A man could have sons that were more likely, though not certain, to have more other sons. And even the daughters of those men might still have male children of their own that had more sons. The force of possible heritable mutations that would throw a different mix is the pressure that only ever reaches a balancing point at one-to-one -one males to females. Or rather, to be precise, the balance is one-to-one -one parental investment in males and females. If females were half the size of men and required half as much parental attention and grew two to a birth, so that you could raise two females at the same cost as one male, the balancing point would be two women per men, 
You wouldn't be able to do better by birthing more men because men would be more expensive. If you see an animal species that isn't half male and half female, the first thing to ask is whether the males or females are bigger or smaller or fewer survive to adulthood, or there's otherwise some big difference in how expensive they are to birth and raise to maturity. But there's a larger point and a more important one. The balancing point isn't the point that's good for the species, the country as a whole. It's not the point you would pick if you were a super-god making the species from scratch. If you were doing that as a super-god, you'd probably have ten times as many women as men, and then just make it incredibly biologically difficult to ever birth all men. Try to design the people so that no mutation could possibly affect the balance of ten women per men. More members of the species would be able to birth children. Or to look at it from another angle, you might also wonder whether a group or small faction birthing mostly women would have an advantage over a group with half men and half women if the mostly female group could grow faster, because more of its members could bear children, or because it didn't have to pay the extra cost in food of supporting men, too. But then, a group like that would also be vulnerable to an invading mutation that birthed more men. That mutation would rapidly spread within the group. You can look at the sex ratio in humans, half men and half women, and say things like, Oh, I see that the balancing points between competing genes do not settle at the place that is good for groups having more children. It settles in the places that are advantageous for individuals having more children. And then everything else you see inside a human should settle in a similar kind of place, or it won't be stable against the pressure from mutated alternatives. That's why you want to prosper for yourself instead of being full of unselfish desire to see your whole country prosper. It's why I need to offer you money to work for me, instead of you just working for the benefit of Galarian or Keliax. A faction full of individuals all working for the common good would grow faster, obtain more resources, and have more kids, and you might think a mutation which built people like that would soon take over the world. But as soon as that faction was invaded by a mutation in an individual that worked for their own benefit— that mutation would soon become more common. It wouldn't be a stable balancing point in the sort of species that ends up with half males and half females. Insect species, like ants if you have those here, which you probably do if there's a word for ants, have lots of worker ants all laboring for the benefit of an ant hive. They don't have equal investment in males and females. Ants can be balanced in different places because ants reproduce differently and workers share more genes with their queens. I wouldn't be surprised if the event that you remember historically as humans gaining free will was the gods trying to modify people to work unselfishly for gods or maybe the gods' factions like ants. But over time, mutations accumulated in the human population that made them resistant to that magical template and restored the old balancing points where people cared about themselves instead. Or maybe the gods stopped doing it for some other reason. I don't know. I'm new around here. Oh, and I should say, the balancing points aren't purely selfish. You share half your genes with your parents, half your genes with your children, and an average of around half your genes with your brothers and sisters. You have some instinct to help them, though not quite as strongly as you wish to help yourself. My point is that, if you know how all the pieces of reality are woven together, if you know the hidden orders and secret stories behind them, you can take one glance at the statistics of women giving birth, see that it's half male children and half female children, and guess... I bet the people in this species mostly want pay for their work, and don't mostly work unselfishly for the good of the group like ants. I bet they care a lot about their brothers and sisters, but not nearly so much about their second cousins. The pressures on heredity in this species must balance at the point where individuals and small families can't easily get more grandchildren with a different strategy, 
not at the point where larger groups can't get more grandchildren with a different strategy. And I could similarly guess very quickly that you hadn't been put together from scratch by gods or super-gods, just from the way you acted so similar to Dathalani at a basic level, because gods wouldn't be bound by those balancing points the same way. The students are captivated. It fits with what we've learned in theology class, Meritzel says, about there being deep reasons evil is, a natural equilibrium, though not usually phrased like that. A balancing point of pressures. Very large amounts of reality in general are at balancing points of pressures, which is why that aspect of reality sticks around in that form. It's a very common, maybe the most common form that a hidden order takes. Water is a balancing point of pressures, in a way I'll either explain for free or sell later. If water wasn't balanced in its own dimensions of reality, you wouldn't see so much of it around. Rocks, too. They're at balancing points among the possible ways that the stuff making up rocks could be instead of rocks. Likewise, just about everything in the human body or mind is at a local balancing point of how individuals and families can have the most grandchildren, because if it wasn't, even a small mutation could move you to a better point along that local dimension, and then that mutation would propagate. Like people wanting to have sex, say, where if they wanted less sex, they'd have fewer kids, and if they wanted even more sex right away, they'd do things that aren't productive in the long term and end up with fewer kids. If your body made a bunch more blood, or a bunch less blood, that would, on average, lead to you having fewer kids too. The degree to which people are evil on average, however gods define that exactly, will also be at a balancing point relative to how many grandchildren families have when they're around that evil. Or if the world has recently been thrown into disequilibrium, the average degree of evil will be moving away from its previous point, where people in the previous world had the most grandchildren if they were around that evil. This would be even easier to see if you'd studied calculus, by the way. So when you do, remember to go back and rethink this in terms of derivatives equaling zero, at the point where things stick around in existence. They take notes vigorously. Spells you can cast happen at balancing points in ways that magic can be someone volunteers. If you try to design a spell that does a random thing you thought of that'd be nice to have a spell for, it'll blow up in your face. And the reason is that you didn't happen to stumble on a way for magic to be where the magic will be happy to be, with no nearby state it'll flow into instead. So, the way to actually invent spells is to understand where magic flows and then find places it's flowed into, and then figure out what spell that must be. I'm frankly a bit puzzled as to why wizards don't already know calculus and not just topology, but maybe if spell design is hard enough to require specialized, ultra-expensive intelligence headbands and calculus is only useful once you get to that part, well, that's a topic for another time. Keltham is going to be so amused if the actual key to spell design is on the order of invert the matrix to solve for the balancing point, and they just don't know how to invert matrices. But he is mostly not expecting this to be the case, though the incredibly bad design of Chelish schools sure has bumped up its plausibility. Anyways, uh, now that I've said all that and just to check, has anyone had a sudden horrible realization about how mutations for lower intelligence would be propagating or why only what this world calls average intelligence is the way for a family to have the most grandchildren, or why the Chelish Heritage Optimization Program is doing something horribly wrong around there. I don't have anything specific in mind here. I just, uh, it seems wise to check. Well, probably we should be encouraging wizards more aggressively, 
Maybe it'd make sense to not let stupid people have children? Wizards are also more likely to die, I think. And we're in school for longer, and deployed when we graduate. I don't see how you'd change that, though. You need all that school to get good, and you need the deployment to pay Cheliax back and keep the world wound sealed. You could encourage wizards to have kids before they deploy, and their grandparents and the daycares raise them while they're deployed. I think it's hard to be pregnant in school right now, but if it was good for Cheliax, they could change the things that make it hard. There's, well, there's specific details I should probably be selling, not just giving away. But, in general, I'll observe that one corollary of this whole theory is that if you've got a really excellent female wizard, and she's got a brother, you can potentially subsidize the brother to have an extra six kids. It's not as good as her having an extra six kids herself, but it beats doing nothing. Anything more clever and optimal and calculated than that is probably a sale issue rather than a free giveaway, though I'm still working out which is which on that score. I don't know enough details about Cheliax's situation to know myself what an optimal policy should look like. I've given you some of the knowledge you'd need to think about it. But if Chelish Governance is considering a policy shift based on that knowledge, it is probably wise to run it past me too. I don't know how to balance the intelligence of future generations against any need for immediate wizards being deployed at the world wound. And yeah, asking people to be pregnant in school is a large ask. But if you are currently losing even more intelligence to that sort of leak in the gene pool, I would really seriously consider that an emergency. I would not personally have expected a stable society to be possible at this level of average intelligence, and I'm not sure how much further it stays possible. His audience is so captivated and concerned. You'd think raising kids in Cheliacs would be sufficient to make them not stunningly naive, but apparently it isn't. Elias Abarco mutters through the telepathic bond with his colleagues. The girls are hanging off Keltham's every word with a degree of conviction that they ought to realize is borderline dangerous, at best trying to figure out how everything else they've been told is compatible with what they're hearing now, instead of keeping in mind that maybe Keltham's just not Asmodean and won't teach them to be either. Or they're very good liars. Probably for at least some of them, it's the latter. Though it's a very good presentation, optimized for Elias rather than for Keltham, who is definitely missing nearly all of its nuances. Keltham won't teach them to be Asmodian. That's obvious. Presumably, part of what they're here for is to figure out whether there's a variant of Keltham's teachings that will teach kids to be Asmodian. The obvious intelligence and societal competence distilled differently. Presented in a way that preserves the awe-inducing sense of, that's what it's like, for the world to be designed around principles that you'd have to be much smarter to even begin to understand while also preserving the stuff that it ideally go with it. A sense of smallness and irrelevance, which Doth Elon clearly does not bother inculcating. Maybe some of the girls can be set to coming up with the synthesis once they've been nailed down. The plan is to get them tomorrow before dawn, possibly excluding Seaver, who might spend the night with Keltham, and, if so, can be got at breakfast. This isn't Asmodianism, but it does seem like there's a better-crafted, more compelling version of Asmodianism buried in it, once you strip out the stuff that's plainly aimed at advancing the art rather than awing children into submission with it. Ione Sala, know-it-all Irwain. Ione Sala, if somebody were to look inside her head, which nobody of Chelish affiliation, at least, is doing exactly at this moment, would not be smiling as much on the inside as she is on the outside. 
She is thinking about how it really is beautiful that you could look at a species of half-men and half-women and deduce so many other things from that, because you know why they're half-men and half-women, which is a huge thought. She only understands a fraction of, but it implies so many other things, apparently. And with that, you can just get tossed into another plane, even though nobody from your home plane knew for sure there were other planes, and by the time you've been there two minutes, you know which parts of the theology lessons are more there because they're mandatory for Asmodians to believe, and which parts are, the other kind of theology? It doesn't do to be too precise about thoughts like that. But you can end up in another plane you had no idea existed, and within two minutes, you know the people there weren't originally created by the gods. Ione Sala isn't smiling as much on the inside because she's regretting, a little, that her life is like it is. She does well on tests. It's why she's here, that, and being passably pretty. She carefully doesn't compete too hard in social contests. She aims to end up safely in the middle. She behaves just as it is safest to behave, towards the students above her and below her including sexual favors as they are given away to those below her who are useful, or extracted from her by those above her. She passes her loyalty scans by being a cautiously obedient game player even in her own mind, a sort of person that Cheliax considers adequately standard and predictable, a sort of soul that Asmodeus considers to be an acceptably tyrannized slave. It is the way that things have always been and will always be. If any parts of her feel otherwise, they are not allowed to voice their heretical thoughts in words, though she also knows, wordlessly, in the back of her mind, that if she's a good enough wizard someday, Cheliax will ask her to sell her soul, and after that, it will be okay to think more freely. Still some tiny remaining fraction of Ioni Sala, even today, wishes without words or inner acknowledgement that her life could be more like the greater reality she's dimly glimpsed inside a repurposed library in an archduke's villa. Learning things, knowing how one fact connects to so many other facts, seeing how worlds differ across planes. If you wish to support the production of this AI-voiced reading of Plane Crash, please visit patreon.com slash askwhocastsai. Any help is appreciated.